We come to read the Word of the Lord together, and we're reading, first of all, story from John, John chapter 8, and reading from the first verse. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around Him, and He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go and leave your life of sin. Amen. And then we are going to be reading for a third week in the letter of Romans chapter 8, and reading these words that come from Romans from the 28th verse. Paul writes, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are consigned as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor the powers, neither the heights nor the depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word today, we ask that by Your Holy Spirit, You would make this true to us. You would encourage us and strengthen us in Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you just to hold that picture of that woman from John chapter 8. I'm not going to preach in detail on that passage, but just for a moment, step into her mind. She's done something wrong. We don't know the circumstances, but there must be a ton of guilt that goes with that. She's been found out, and there must be a huge experience of shame. And then she's been singled out by the leadership and by the men and by the community for condemnation. She's been ostracized. She's been totally humiliated. And her future at that point looks short and bleak. Now, whatever her story, those feelings are feelings that many feel. In fact, I'll go, I'll go beyond that. They are feelings that in our own way, every single one of us feels the pain of because we can identify at parts of our own lives where we know those things. We have all felt shame. We have all felt guilt. We've all lived either with social ridicule or with the fear of social ridicule. We've all known at times and perhaps regularly what it means to feel rejection, to feel I don't belong, I'm not wanted. But then in the end of those short verses, whatever we make of them, she finds herself in a different place. She's sitting alone with Jesus, and she's accepted, and she's forgiven, and she's seen in all that she has done, and she's valued, and she's invited to move on. I just want to leave that emotional image with you as we start. We'll come back to it. We've been spending the last three weeks, I think, not last week, but the two ones before that, looking at Romans. And Romans, in its whole scope, in one sense, comes and puts us right beside that woman. It starts off in the early chapters by taking us to all that other people have done that are wrong. 
It takes us through the depravities, as Paul and his audience would have seen them, of Roman society, and must have left good, law-fearing Jews that had become Christians ready to pick up a stone and throw it at the world around them. But then it takes us to the brokenness of moral people, of religious people. And it concludes that early section in Romans with words which bring us right beside it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. All. That's you and me. And that's part of that story, isn't it, of that woman? Because it's not just about the woman caught and she knows her sinfulness. It's every single one of those guys that puts the stone down when they realize that they are not without sin either. And they begin to walk away, feeling something perhaps of the shame. But Romans isn't about throwing stones. It's about good news. And we particularly see that as we come on to the eighth chapter. We started it three weeks ago. They're all on YouTube if you missed them. But we started with that great thunder of Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And, and, and as you read chapter 8, I've said this before, you may not understand how all the arguments connect. But as you read it and you see those key verses, you can just feel your heart soar with what Paul is saying. Verse 18, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are children of the Father that we are loved, that we are seen, and that by the Holy Spirit we are adopted into the family through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're able to say, Abba, Father. Verse 18 talks about the glorious future that we have. For the Lord has risen from the dead, and He will be the first fruits of all those that rise, and indeed of the whole of the healing of creation in all its injustices and its pain. We groan just now like we are in childbirth, for what will come in the glorious future. News for our souls and for our world. And then in verse 28, where we started at that amazing promise that all things work together. God is working together for good with those who love Him. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't even say God is using all the bad things to do good. It says that somehow, despite all the pain and the brokenness, God is at work to bring good in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tremendous, triumphant chapter of what has been done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection and who we are because of that. We've been looking at that. And in the last part of this passage, four questions are asked. And here they are. Who can be against us? Who will bring any charge who will condemn us and who will separate us from the love of Christ? And I just want briefly to look at those four questions this morning because I think they speak to where an awful lot of us are and where a lot of us struggle. To start with, who's against us? Well, I don't know about you, but the answer is quite a lot of folk. And if you were a Roman Christian reading this, just think about it. Who's against you? Well, it might seem the whole world is against you. Some of them have been Jews who have become believers in the Messiah, and their synagogue has rejected them. They know what it is to be ostracized. And some of them have become Christians, and as they have done that, and as they have moved away from the pagan gods that they once worshipped, their families have rejected them. And they know what it is 
to face social ridicule, to lose social status. And right behind all of that is the shadow of the beginnings of what will become the imperial persecution under the Emperor Nero. Who is against us? They might have said, the whole world is against us, Paul. We feel so under threat. We're a tiny minority in a majority culture. And in fact, when we became Christians, it got worse. Who is against us? A child is bullied in a schoolyard. Who is against them? A woman is subjected to harassment at work. A young man experiences racism from the police. A person is humiliated by the system as they seek asylum or look for benefits. A wife is undermined by daily abuse from her husband. You know, sometimes, and even if those extreme cases don't relate to us, we know what it is to feel people are against us, don't we? Sometimes that the whole world is against us. But you see, what is asked here very particularly is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? And suddenly, the story is transformed, particularly if you know your Bible, because the Bible, a hundred times it must tell the story of how folk faced impossible enemies, but found that God was on their side, and it transformed things. You know the stories, the boy David facing Goliath and the Philistines just with his little bow, but knew with conviction that the Lord was on his side. Or we can think of the weakly, weedy boy from the worst family in town, Gideon, who had to face off against the powerful Midianites and how he triumphed. Or we think Joshua coming with a small band into a whole populated country and coming up against the walls of Jericho and thinking it was impossible until he blew his trumpets. Or we can think of Moses who will go to Pharaoh as the people are enslaved and say to the most powerful man on earth at the time, let my people go, but we'll have the conviction that God has his back. The story goes on and on and on until we find the little Roman church faced against the mightiest empire that there has ever been and saying, if God is for us, who is against us? Really? Them? Ha! And so the story goes on. The whole idea is this. If we have really grasped what God has done, if we really grasp His love and His commitment to us, then suddenly those things that seem massive are put into a different context. I love the story that I was reading of a a young immigrant man who came through customs at, at, at an airport in the UK and was detained by the police and our lovely home office. And what they wanted to know was, was he going to come and sponge off the state, or did he have the resources to support himself if he came into the country? The young man smiled and said, my father is rich. My father owns the cattle on a thousand fields. Well, that had them stumped because they didn't realize he was quoting Psalm 100 verse 10. I have a father who has all the resources and all the power 
in the world, and therefore I do not need to be afraid, for my God can blow this away. But there's more. Because it's not just that God is powerful and able to defeat whatever is against us, it's that He is completely committed in His love, because the verse goes on to say this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The word that says gave up His own Son, by the way, in in, in Greek is the same word where it talks about Judas giving up, handing over Jesus to Pilate. And it's the same word that's used when Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. And it's as if the Bible is saying this, you know, these things seem to be these big powers, Judas is evil and uh, Pilate's power, but actually it was all God's master plan of love to give Jesus. Now stop and let this sink in for a moment, because sometimes even as believers we worry, have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I loved enough? And when we start to think like that, have I done enough to earn God's love, then we are going to always feel insecure. But when we look up like that woman might have done that day and see Jesus, when we realize that we follow a God who doesn't just have power, but He has already given His Son for us, we realize that this God is completely invested in us. He will not stop. Now, sometimes the situation will look hopeless. Sometimes there seems to be no way out. But what this passage tells us is God is not going to back out. He is utterly committed to us. And then the second question, who will bring any charge Now, again, the Roman Christians might have well said, lots of people are bringing charges. Paul, you're writing this from a prison cell. You've been arrested because your enemies brought charges and the the people put you in prison. We know what it is to be charged. We know what it is to be accused. We know what it is to have the neighbors pointing the fingers at us. We know what it is to have the police knock on the door. Some of us have been denounced. But here's the reality. We may not be in any danger of being locked up for our faith, but all of us, we know what it is to be charged. We know what it is to feel that someone is pointing the finger, pointing out what we're doing wrong. You feel that? It's not just the minister. (laughs) This job, you get it quite a lot telling you what you're doing wrong. But actually, I suspect it's all of us all of the time. Criticism, attacks, put-downs, nagging, on and on and on it goes, all of it saying, you're not doing it right, you're not good enough, you're not measuring up. And sometimes that criticism is well-deserved. Sometimes it's in love. But very often it's not. It's in maliciousness or it's in people trying to put themselves forward. And it leaves us where? Insecure, guilt-ridden, and condemned. And that, in a sense, 
if we want to put it all together, brings us to the third question. Who is it that then condemns? And again, the answer is that we feel condemned all the time. Because here's the truth. We really care what people think about us. And we worry about it. We worry about what other people will think. Now, I do know that there's some folk out there who say, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. You know what my response to that is? That's only what you want them to think. There's no way around it. All of us have a self-image that comes from what other people think, and therefore we are so insecure. We're back with that woman looking up at Jesus. But Jesus asks the question, and then says, I do not condemn you. Paul says, who will bring a charge against those that God has chosen? Not God. And who will condemn them? And Jesus is saying, I gave my life that they might be forgiven. I gave my life knowing their weakness and all their falseness and I said that they are forgiven. So the charges and the condemnation can evaporate. Martin Luther, who started the Reformed Church, was a monk, and he was a very devout monk. He prayed every week. He did very good works, every day rather. And yet Martin Luther's story was that he was always troubled by guilt. He always felt, I've not done enough, until he started to read the book of Romans and discovered that faith in Jesus and what he'd done on the cross was all that he needed. And Luther tells how that great cloud of guilt was lifted and it enabled him to go and preach the gospel. You know, as Christians, we often feel condemned. But there is a reason for that. And the reason is that our enemy, and the Bible calls him Satan, and Satan actually means the accuser or the slanderer. And it's as if Satan is going around all the time whispering in our ear, because he wouldn't dare say it to God, you're not good enough. You're not really forgiven. You're not really a Christian. It's all made up. You are guilty. You should feel small and wretched and not spiritual. You're a hypocrite. And Satan is whispering that all in our ear. It's interesting, Martin Luther's response when he felt Satan whispering that in our ear, and every single one of us knows what that feels like. Luther says, said, stop right there. I have been baptized. And that was shorthand for saying, I belong to Jesus. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose again for me. So you cannot sit there and say anything else. He has forgiven me. He is pleading my cause. And that is enough. Now, this really practically matters because, see, when you are, as a Christian, secure in what Jesus has done for you, then actually, when you get criticism, you're secure enough to listen to it because I don't need to be defensive. I can face the fact that I'm a sinner and that I'm broken, and therefore, I can listen to criticism and I can learn from it where it's appropriate, but it will not undermine who I am. It will not undermine my self-image because my self-image is based in Jesus Christ. If you think about it, two men go out 
for a day and they've both got money in their wallet and both of them come home and discover that they've lost 10 pounds. And I don't mean here, from the wallet. One is completely broken and the other thinks very little of it. Why? Because one of them is a billionaire. Now, I don't say that because I'm saying billionaires are careless with money. Most billionaires have got lots of money because they've looked after it, potentially. But the point is this. If you have an awareness of the riches that you have, then you can endure the difficulties of loss. And that's what the gospel says for us. It doesn't say everything will be right and rosy. It says be aware of all that you have in Jesus Christ that you cannot lose. And it completely transforms the way that you live your work. And then the last of the questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a strange list, actually, because it, it combines things that seem to have got to do with, you know, Roman soldiers coming and arresting you to things that have got to do with extreme poverty to things that have got to do with, well, just the troubles of life. It, it, it lopes them all together, and I guess all of us can identify with it. But here is what it is saying. You know, one of the problems with religion is that it often leaves people very insecure because what they think is that we know God loves us because He gives us good things. Right? I keep God's rules. I, I, I love God. I pray. And, and, and God gives me good things, and that's the deal. The problem with that is when trouble comes, a religious person has a double problem because they're not just dealing with the trouble, they're dealing with this new thought. That shows God doesn't love you. Or that shows that you've not done enough. Or that shows that He's angry with you. Or that shows you didn't pray enough or didn't believe enough. And so you're confounded with two problems, both the problem that the atheist has, which is this nonsense is happening to me and it's hard, but also a different problem of tremendous insecurity, and it often leads people to get stressed or to lose faith. Now, Paul is very, very clear in this chapter. Christians are not promised better circumstances. In fact, what is said quite clearly here is if you follow Jesus Christ, you will share in His sufferings. It may cause you more persecutions, more rejection, more abuse. But here's what it is saying. Your security will be massive because the idea that God loves you is not circumstances dependent. Going through difficult times does not mean that God does not love you. Why? Because of this. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor the powers, neither the height nor the depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as it said in the verse before, which I have lost, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I lost the verse. Now, the, when it says we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us, it actually uses the past tense for love. 
And what it means by this is that God's love is that Jesus died for us and rose again and gave us a spirit. And that's what gives us the confidence. God has done that, and so he will be able to do anything else that he has promised for us. That means that suffering doesn't need to make us insecure because we are completely secure in his love, and circumstances cannot contradict it. And that last verse, verse 38, verse 39, really saying this, I am convinced that nothing, no nothing, can separate us from God's love. And so we turn back finally to that woman. Wrong she's done, as we all have. Status she's lost. Perhaps people are saying terrible things, but Jesus sees her, and Jesus loves her, and Jesus isn't pointing a finger, He's holding out a hand that is transformational. For us, this is the basis of everything. Our society today recognizes some of the truth of this when it says that people suffer from low self-esteem, and that's often a huge problem, isn't it, that people think they're worthless, and the world wants to say, no, you're not worthless, you're not useless, you're not sinful, you're not a failure. The problem is, what if you are? What if you have failed? What if you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer? What if the things that people are saying about you are actually true? But here's what the gospel says. The gospel says, not, oh, underneath it all, you're actually a, 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 a tremendously beautiful person. The gospel says this, God sees you as you are. He sees you at your worst, and He still loves you. Your hope is in Jesus. You don't need self-esteem. You need Jesus' esteem. Because when you lift Him up, rather than trying to lift yourself up, you have complete security. And by the way, this is the true basis for human rights. You know, the, 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 we've spoken about this before. The American Constitution says we hold these things to be self-evident, that all, things are, all, all people are created equal, and nothing could be further from the truth. It is not self-evident that all people are equal. Some are brighter than others. Some work harder than others. Some have worse circumstances than others. Some are more moral than others. They're all different. But the truth of the gospel says that Christ died for every single one of them. God valued every single one of them 100% as He sent His Son. And when we hold that up, we have complete security for ourselves, and we have a complete reason to value every human being as we reach out to them with the love and the care and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And for me, that is the true basis of the value of every human life. It is in Christ. Regardless of what they believe, of religion, of faith, of background, or upbringing, that God so loved the world that He sent His Son. He so loved. So, may we look to Jesus and know complete security that He has 
that we have in him.